And in this from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. All this is God's doing. For God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for Him as well since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Paul is in a peculiar place. He finds himself in prison, under house arrest, if you will, because of his proclamation of the faith. He's been laboring for the gospel now for some time, and he's ready for some relief. In our series over September and October, we're talking about cultivating the good life, what it means to have a good life according to be a follower of Christ. We read for several weeks out of Paul's writings to the Romans, a letter to the Romans, the early Christians there at Rome. We switch today over to Philippians. Still, Paul is writing, this time to a group of Christians at Philippi. He opens the letter sharing his prayer for the Philippians, saying to them, I care about you, I'm praying for you, I'm still thinking of you. He also shares some personal greetings along with those prayers. He says that he is still busy proclaiming the gospel even to those whom are his prison keepers. And then where we picked up today, he says this, for to me... Living is Christ, and dying is gain. Now, that's a peculiar place for Paul to be in. Most of us think as living as gain and dying as loss and nothing but loss. But Paul is seeing it in a whole different light at this point in his life. He's saying, oh, living is Christ, but dying is gain. That is, he thinks he'll be even closer to Christ. And he thinks that would be a great thing because all Paul wants is to be more like Christ, to be closer to Christ. It's been like that since a, one day when he was on a road to Damascus from Jerusalem. He was a persecutor early in his life as a young man of those early followers, those who were proclaiming that this Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead. He could not abide that. He could not believe they were saying this fellow was the Messiah, the one who'd been crucified. He was going to find those who proclaim such a thing. And while he was traveling, he has this dramatic experience where he's knocked off his horse, 
sees a bright light. He hears the voice of Christ speaking to him, asking him why he's persecuting those who are followers of Christ. He feels this call of God come to him to be one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. He's told to go into the city and wait for further instruction. Paul has this dramatic experience of Christ alive in his life, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life. From that time on, Paul relied on that promise that he would be directed by Christ, that he would be guided and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. The great biblical commentator William Barclay comments on this very passage and what he thinks it is like to be Paul in this time and what God has done in Paul's life. I want to read you just a few sentences from what Barclay wrote. He says, To Paul, Christ had given the task of life, for it was he who had made him an apostle and sent him out as the evangelist of the Gentiles. To him, Christ had given the strength for life, for it was Christ's all-sufficient grace that was made perfect in Paul's weakness. For him, for Paul, Christ was the reward of life. For to Paul, the only worthwhile reward was closer fellowship with his Lord. If Christ were to be taken out of life, for Paul, there would be nothing left. Paul is consumed by Christ. His every desire, his every action is to proclaim Christ for others, to share this good news of God's love that will change your life with any and all who will listen. My life is not that permeated with Christ. Is yours? I still find, even though I desire to be all in for Christ, that there's times in my life and parts of my life that are not under the control and command of Christ. That may be true for you as well. But for Paul, he says it matters not whether he lives or he dies, whether he suffers or he celebrates, whether he's with the people of Philippi or not. It's all for Christ, so it matters not what happens to him. He's so consumed by this love of God. He's been so transformed by the presence of the risen Christ that he's ready to give anything and everything to proclaim God's love to others. Have you heard the story of the king and his friend? They were inseparable. They spent all their time together. But the friend had a habit of saying, this is good, no matter what happened. If something really great happened, he would say, this is good. If something not so great happened, he would still say, this is good. It was a little bit annoying to the king, and yet they were such close friends that they stayed together. One day they were out hunting together. The friend was loading the rifle and handing it to the king, and he was the one firing the shots. Something went wrong with one of the loading mechanisms or something because at one point the king leveled the rifle and made the shot and the rifle blew up in his hand and blew off his thumb he was screaming in pain and bleeding thinking this was terrible 
And yet his friend said, oh, this is good. And the king said, absolutely not. This is not good. This is not a situation that is good. He was so angry that by the time they got back to the village, the king decided to throw his friend in jail, and he sent him away. About a year later, he's out hunting, this time by himself, since his friend is in jail. He's traveled further away from the village than usual. He's in territory he should have known better than to be in because it was rumored that cannibals still lived in the area, and yet he went out alone hunting in that place. Sure enough, the cannibals found him and grabbed him and took him back to the village. They tied his hands and his feet. They erect a stake. They tie him to the stake. They're putting wood around him. They're about to roast him when one of them notices that his thumb is gone. And being a superstitious people, they don't eat anybody that has any missing body parts. They let him go. He races back to the village on his way. He begins to think about what his friend has said. That when his thumb was blown off, that it was good. He began to feel rather badly, a little bit guilty about having thrown his friend in jail for a year. So he concluded that as soon as he got back, he would go to the jail and release his friend, which he does. As soon as he sees him, he begins to apologize. He begins to say, it was terrible, I'm so sorry, I should have never done that. And his friend said, oh no, this is good. And the king said, how can you say this is good? You've been suffering for a year in this prison all alone. And he said, because if I had not been in prison, I would have been with you. (laughs) This is good. When the friend says, this is good, that is a statement of faith. It doesn't mean that everything in life that happens is going to be pleasant or just the way we had hoped or planned. But the friend is stating his faith in saying this is good because he believes that good can come out of it. That God is at work in the world bringing good out of all circumstances. Paul is in a place where he's facing possible execution for his faith. For most of us, that would be so harrowing. And yet for Paul, he's not preoccupied with living or dying. He says he can go either way. For Paul, he is preoccupied with Christ. His only focus is on Christ and what God is doing in his life through Christ. It is a big shift in focus, a 180 degree shift from where Paul began his life of faith. And now he's all in for Christ. Paul writes, this is God's doing. For God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for Him as well. Paul is remembering that God has sent His Son to the earth, and while here He suffered and sacrificed to reveal to the whole world that God's love is coming for them, that God's love is available for each and every one of them. And because Paul so so desires to be like Christ, 
And he knows that Christ suffered. He is ready to suffer. He is ready to sacrifice because he wants to be more like Christ and be closer to him. So Paul can say believing is part of faith, but suffering is part of faith as well. Both a privilege as long as you understand it's a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Paul sees it all as a witness that no matter what he's experiencing whether the circumstances are grand or terrible that it's all for christ because he's given his whole entire self over to god in the service of christ do you know the name itzhak perlman as a child he had polio But he had opportunity to begin to learn to play the violin. And he practiced and practiced, and he became a master violin player. Because of the polio, he still has trouble walking. So if ever you had opportunity to see him perform on stage, you might see him struggle to walk out to his place, often using crutches. There was one night that he was performing back in 1995, that that was the situation. There was a full orchestra, but he was the feature violinist. They were playing masterworks that night. Perlman struggled out to his chair, found himself, sat down, looked at the maestro. The orchestra's ready, and they begin to play, and he begins to play beautifully. But only a few lines into the piece. There is a sound that sounds like someone set off a firecracker. And those who were close enough to see could see that one of his strings on his violin had popped and broken. The orchestra heard it. The conductor heard it. They all stopped. For all musicians know there's no way he can play what he's supposed to play with four strings if he only has three left. You could tell all of a sudden the crowd was nervous, wondering what to do. What was Perlman going to do? Was he going to... Try to stand back up and go get another violin or another string. But he just paused for a moment, closed his eyes and looked down, took a deep breath, looked back up, looked at his violin, looked at the conductor and nodded his head as if he were ready to go. They couldn't believe it. But sure enough, he wanted the conductor and the symphony to begin again. And so they did, and he began to play. And those there said you could see how hard he was working to make the music right, that he was even tuning and detuning the different strings, that he was playing different speeds as they went through the piece, maybe playing sounds no one had ever heard before from a violin as he played the entire piece with such power and precision and purity that by the time they were done, there was just a hush that fell over the concert hall. And then finally, the crowd erupted in applause and stood to their feet and began to yell bravo and tried to express their admiration and their joy in what he had done. As the applause began to die down, Perlman asked them to sit again. And he said not in an arrogant way, but sort of in a reflective or pensive, almost irreverent way, 
you know, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. A music commentator who was there that night wrote about it later and said, can you imagine having practiced your whole life and prepared to play with four strings and then in the middle of this concert, all of a sudden you only have three But she said, you know, he is such a master listening to him play that night was more beautiful and more sacred and more memorable because he only had three strings with which to play. So offering, we decide ahead of time that any and all suffering is bad. But Paul is saying being a person of faith can change all of that. And if we're suffering for the cause of Christ, knowing that God is with us, that it can become a more beautiful, a more sacred, and a more memorable life experience, even when suffering is included. Paul only has one instruction in all these verses we read this morning. I've put it in your outline. He says to these early Christians, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Samuel Wells is the lead pastor at a large church, a well-known church in London, England. When I was there a couple of years ago, I was able to see St. Martin in the Fields Anglican Church. It is a prestigious and beautiful place. It is a Church of England parish. But he said he had opportunity one year to go over to Europe, to the continent, to preach. He said, I'm not sure what possessed me because it was a group of charismatics who invited me and I accepted this invitation to go. He said, when I got there, the hall was full. He said, over a thousand people, some 1,300 people are there. And the band comes out, which surprises him, and they begin to play. And he said, man, I was really out of my comfort zone. Oh, I had heard the songs, but it was like we were in a time warp. They were all from the 1970s. But he said, oh, people were standing up and raising their hands and swaying excessively. He said, still out of my comfort zone. And he said, they went on and on. He said, can you believe this service lasted three and a half hours? He said, I could have helped them with the length. They didn't know how to do this the way the Episcopalians do. I could have really helped them. He said they invited all these 1,300 people to come forward for prayer. If they had any need, if they had any desire to come and pray with someone, they invited them to come. He said almost everybody came, person after person. He said, but the mistake they made is they didn't serve communion while they had them out front. They sent them back to their seats, and then they invited them a second time to come for communion. He said, I could have helped with the efficiency. But he said they also asked him to pray for these people who came. 
And he said, I was put with one other person. We were to pray for any individual that came forward. We were to touch them physically as well as with prayer. He wrote this about that part of the experience. All of human life is in these moments that people shared. The single person longing for a partner. The couple aching for a child. The parents who sigh for their troubled offspring. The daughter who fears for her parents' marriage. The spouse who anticipates his partner's dementia. The young person who stumbles over her own mental health. The senior who yearns for a faith she's never really had. Wells wrote, my prayer partner and I alternated the ministry of word and touch, growing in respect for each other the deeper we traveled into the souls of good people. And then he writes about the experience of communion and how so much of his ministry became clear in that moment. He wrote this, these people had been taken and broken. My prayer partner and I had blessed them, and now we were all sharing in the feast of grace and truth. They had brought me their griefs and struggles like bringing gifts to the altar. Now they were bringing their hunger and faith, and they were recognizing in the broken pieces of bread their place in God's heart and God's place in theirs. He concluded his writing by saying the body of Christ made flesh was being taken and blessed, broken and given over and over again. He said, I had the privilege of being part of it all, and I wanted to be a part of it forever. Amen. And thank